Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. And I'm Lydia Abraha. This week at the ROJ, we held our event, ROJ Unpublished, All Shook Up. As young journalists entering an industry in crisis, we've heard all about what's going wrong, how none of us will ever get permanent jobs, let alone benefits, but we're tired of hearing about what doesn't work. On March 19th, we brought in six speakers to talk about what they're doing differently and who's getting journalism all shook up. Today on Pull Quotes, you'll hear a selection of some of their talks. We were joined by Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud, news curation editor at BuzzFeed News, San Graywall, founder of The Pointer, Hannah Hogue, energy and environment editor at The Conversation, Annabelle Sutar, a playwright and theater producer, William Wolf Wiley, a senior developer at CBC News, and Jesse Brown, publisher of Canada Land and host of the Canada Land podcast. The federal government just released their 2019 budget, the last before the election this coming October. The budget included some details of the government's news media fund. This includes measures like tax credits to qualified Canadian journalism organizations or QCJOs for hiring reporters, researchers, or editors. QCJOs will also be allowed to register as donees, basically like a charity. But this news doesn't scream healthy journalism industry. Not at all. That said, with or without government funding, people are still doing journalism, and they're doing it in ways that cuts through the noise and appeals to the audience's emotion. In our excerpt from ROJ Unpublished, Journalism All Shook Up, we'll hear from Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud, Hannah Hogue, and William Wolfe Wiley. Here's Elamine. I, my main job is to write the BuzzFeed News morning newsletter. Um, like I said, it goes out at 7.30 in the morning, and the main job of the newsletter is to um, tell you everything that happened in the world the day before that. It's a little bit of an overwhelming task that I've been, um, I've been at for about a year and three months. Um, and if you're wondering, yeah, like my body's like, stop waking up at four, please. That would be really appreciated. Um, but the job itself is a part of what we call the news curation team. Um, I'm, uh, I'm on a team of about 10 people or so, um, and news curation in English is really, um, our, our main task is to say, say for example, um, Jesse wrote a story, and Jesse's a very good writer. He's not, but let's pretend he is. Um, and so Jesse wrote a story, um, but his job is to get the facts of the story right, to get um, the journalism correct. But maybe Jesse doesn't know everything there is to know about moving stories across platforms. He doesn't know how to make a story travel on Instagram. He doesn't make a story. Doesn't know how to make a story travel on Facebook, um, on Twitter, etc. Um, that's where we come in. So our job as news curators um, is to move those stories across different platforms. Um, and each platform sort of demands a different voice. Uh, audiences have different expectations across those platforms, um, and that's where we come in. So. Each member of our team is an expert in their platform. Um, we are spread across three different time zones in three different countries, um, and that is all we do. Our entire job is to translate stories into social media, um, social media languages. So if the story needs to be translated into a Twitter thread, one person handles that. Um, if it's a, a gallery for Instagram or an Instagram story, another person handles that. Um, that is not a job that existed in this industry five years ago. I also don't think it's a job that's going to exist in five years, because I think in five years, no, I don't mean to be pessimistic, um, 
because I think in five years, most journalists graduating will know um, how to make their own stories sort of travel. So we're sort of in this golden moment where there is like a superhero team that sweeps in and then they deliver the stories across the platforms. Um, I used to be in charge of our Twitter during the day. That was sort of my main task. Uh, and then um, they, we decided that we take over, that I would take over the newsletter. Now just to get an idea of, how many of you are familiar with the BuzzFeed News newsletter? Nice. Thank you for reading. I appreciate it. Um, so for those of you who are not subscribers, um, one, of the, one of the main things that I think we do well uh, is, is voice. So the newsletter comes every morning, and it's written in first person. Um, and the reason it's written in first person is because its job is to, to deliver the news to you, but to also recognize the medium that it's coming in. So it's coming in um, your email. And I personally believe that email is deeply, deeply the most personal medium um, out of all the social platforms. So if you're on Facebook, um, it's not that personal. People sort of expect to be advertised, expect to be sort of try to sold, you know, sold something. Um, same thing with Instagram. Emails is, I think, a little bit different. People have expectations of voice, of expectations that a newsletter will meet them where they are. Um, so if I had my slides here, which I don't, uh, I'd be able to show you examples of what that means. So in practice, we recognize when stories, um, in the newsletter, we recognize when a story is complicated. We say, we get it, this is complicated, let's walk through it in, in you know, steps that you might actually be familiar with. Um, that's the job of the newsletter. The job of the newsletter is to inform you and not make you frustrated. Um, there are lots of newsletters that come in, um, and I personally believe that a lot of newsrooms start with their buy-in way too high. But they're asking readers to be familiar with all of the details of the story that's been unfolding for three weeks, for four weeks, um, and just be able to dip in and pick up on all the new information. We don't do that. We start anew every morning. Um, we sort of understand that you readers um, have lives that are <laughs> not news-based like ours. Um, and so when you open an email, your expectations generally um, are that you get caught up and then you get the new information that just happened. Um, that is something that I think I'm really proud of how we do uh, in this particular newsletter because the way that we've been able to do it, I've got a lot of emails from readers who say, like, look, your newsletter is one of the best parts of my morning, and the reason um, it is is because it doesn't make me feel stupid when I'm trying to catch up on the news. That's really valuable to me because that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and again, pretend that there are slides and not mushrooms. Um, and, it, and, and at this point in the talk, I'll be trying to talk to you about um, how the New York Times has 13 million subscribers across uh, something like 55 newsletters. But that's pretty absurd. But the reason they have so many is because there's a lot of data that suggests that newsletters are much better at um, acquiring subscribers than every other medium. It's about two times as effective as everything else. Um, so if you are a newsletter subscriber, you're more willing to pay for, um, for that journalism. For us, that's proven useful in terms of starting a new uh, membership program. We've got a lot of members who signed up through the newsletter. Um, we sell newsletter merch, and we sell, uh, I'm really proud of uh, the relationship that people have developed with the sign-offs in the newsletter. Um, so every day I sign off the newsletter with just a thought that is just like a nice thought to start your day, hopefully. Um, and then people started saying, hey man, can we get these in calendars? I was like, what? <laughs> but, that, but that was an interesting transition because what that tells me is that like, 
people are having an, an emotional relationship with that. Um, and the fact that this is coming at the end of uh, a newsletter that just told you everything bad that happened in the world, um, to me, that is that is actually like something, that is a career highlight. Um, we started selling t-shirts that have the newsletter sign-offs on them, and they're selling really well. Um, so that's another sort of unexpected and strange revenue stream. Um, I'm going to stop roughly around here, but just to reiterate, like something about newsletters, they're having a moment right now. Um, and I think it's because people are looking for a voice um, and looking for something to cut through all the noise. There's so much noise um, in media. There's so much uh, stories that are just happening to you. People feel like the news is just happening to them. Like you log onto Twitter and it just hits you in the face. Um, and you don't know, I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like my muscle of determining what's important is getting worked all the time and it's really, really tough. Um, and so for, because of the fact that newsletter is like this finite space um, that is its own sort of perfect thing, um, people have started to gravitate towards the medium and I'm absolutely loving it. That's it. And here's Hannah Hogue. So how many of you know about the conversation with Canada? You. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about us first. Um, so we launched in Canada about a year and a half ago, but we're part of a global organization that began in Australia closer to seven years ago. There's now eight different sites representing different regions, the US, the UK, there's one large site for Africa, one for Australia, New Zealand, um, that sort of gives you the, the landscape of where we are. Um, and each of these uh, sites, we work together, but we also work independently, and they're structured by having groups of editors that have an expertise in an area who edit academics, and the academics bring their knowledge and their research to our site, and we help them make it palatable, one might say, for the general public. Um, so what we sort of see ourselves uh, being involved in, really, is, is unlocking a lot of the knowledge that's involved that is being made in universities and bringing it to the public for better decision-making, better awareness of what's going on in the world. And that's really where you know, this ties into expertise and um, I think really improving the credibility of journalism and news organizations and news around the world. Um, more and more we're inundated with uh, increasing amounts of news. Uh, commentary, it comes from all over. It's hard to figure out what's credible, what's not, especially when you get into really niche, very specific subject areas, and this is, I mean, it's great that we have access to all this news. It's great that you know, we've got it in our pockets, on our phones, can pick it up whenever. But um, we're suffering a lot from these hot takes, unreliable news, there's tricksters, and there's also this loss of beat reporters. So we don't have the specialists that could go to the experts and bring the, the specifics and the credible news stories in. Um, and we'll really see the conversation as being a part of the, that process of um, bringing back some of that credibility to, uh, to news publications. Um, and we're not the only ones doing it. There are a lot of niche news organizations that are starting to, to pop up, this fragmentation, so to speak. And I, and I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as being organizations being allowed to focus in on what they know best and the communities they know best, and then coming together and filling in these gaps that are existing because of the state of the media right now. Um, the conversation itself is rebuilding that authority we're building on enthusiasm, the innovation, the commitment to quality, and we, because of the way we operate, we're bringing that to all these other organizations as well. Um, 
We operate under a uh, Creative Commons model, which means that any publication can copy and paste our stories and republish them for free anywhere in the world. All they have to do is just make sure they're doing it word for word and that they include this tiny little bit of code that allows us to track the story as it goes around the world. So we know exactly how many readers we have on each story, where they come from, and where it's being published. We get uh, republication. So Canadian authors, Canadian academics, are getting republished, their stories republished in the UK, in the US, places like the Daily Mail, CNN Health, um, locally, The Star, McLean's. Um, really all over the world. And well, actually our biggest republisher is the Weather Network actually, which we find very interesting, but it makes sense in the end. People are, you know, they're opening their phones and getting it, looking to see what the weather is, and then they're picking up some news story along the way. And it's a really fascinating way to think about how you're transmitting information to the public. Um, we also uh, think that we're, um, we're helping we're helping bring experts uh, to other news organizations as well. Uh, when there's a breaking news situation, journalism really needs experts who can respond quickly. Uh, we feel like we're doing a bit of training in that respect in terms of getting academics and experts in these areas to respond quickly to uh, news events and to turn in stories that we then edit back and forth and can publish, uh, you know, sometimes within a couple hours if we're really lucky, uh, at least by the end of the day. And I think that um, that helps with the public in terms of getting information out there, but it also helps other journalists do their jobs because they've got a credible source for, for other stories that may, they might want to do after the fact. Our database of experts is, can't remember the number off the top of my head, sorry, and I didn't write it down, but it's growing and growing, and you can search by keywords. So if you are looking for somebody who is you know, a criminal psychologist who really understands um, serial killers, you can put that in our database and pull out a Canadian or an American or an Australian who's an expert in that. So you can do your story. You can see what this person has written to get a sense of, does this person really have that knowledge that I'm looking for? Um, and and I, I, mean, I think that's great in a Canadian context in terms of being able to explain some of the, the news events that are going on or provide commentary, but it all, it's also great globally. Uh, last week, for example, our New Zealand team was able to have a New Zealand-based terrorism expert write about the attacks in Christchurch, and it really made sure that there was a local um, view that was getting out across the globe, rather than just pulling experts from wherever in the world that might have some idea. They had someone who really understand the situation in the country where the terrorist attacks occurred. Um, and there's another aspect of expertise, and I think I hesitated to use the word initially because there is this perception of what an expert is and whether or not they're housed in an ivory tower and that that's the only way you can be an expert is if you have uh, six you know, PhDs after your name. And, and we really need to shift away from seeing, that, seeing the same experts over and over and over again. And I think we try hard as editors at the conversation to make sure that we are getting a diversity of experts out there and their points of view. Um, we want to work to change who the public sees as experts. We're finding younger people. We're making sure we have diversity, both in terms of men and women who are represented and authors in our stories, as well as people of color and indigenous collaborators that are working with academic researchers on a variety of um, issues and research areas. Um, we, uh, it's part of our goal is really to work hard to find more women to, to author 
uh, pieces and we've been tracking our efforts. We've been getting closer and closer to 50% as we go through the year and then February we finally hit it. And we know that it's something we still need to work on and that there are other goals that we need to work on as well, but right now we're sort of focusing on one thing at a time and as we go forward we'll challenge ourselves more and more to, to make sure that we get that diversity um, of those experts representing Canadian views and providing that news analysis we need in Canada. Um, and uh, I just wanted to say one thing about size and growth and you know we're, we're looking at positive you're trying to be positive about things here and we've only been around for less than two years we continue to grow year after year um, we have had um, so we, we of course track these things like everybody else we try not to be bound to them too much but um, the Conversation Canada, just as a Canadian publication, um, so last year saw an average number of 1.38 million page views per month. And that is still on an upward trend. We are getting more and more pitches, we're hiring more people to do, uh, to be editors for these for these stories that go out. Go out. But we're also starting to consider ourselves more as part of the global uh, organization, the conversation as a global entity so that we can get those perspectives from around the world into the into the inboxes and onto the phones of Canadians all, uh, as well. And when you look at that, there's 37 million um, reads per month. That's huge. And all of the other conversations continue to grow and there's increasing interest from other countries to expand as well. Um, so I think we're actually in a really positive place. I don't think we have to worry about this fragmentation. I think we can think about how we can all uh, work uh, together to build a better media landscape and to get better stories out there. And there's different uh, tools that I've mentioned here that you know help us get there by having experts, by doing using Creative Commons licenses to allow republication of material, um, and we can really build a robust journalism ecosystem. And next is William Wolf Wiley. Uh, yeah, so my name is William Wolf Wiley. I teach here on occasion as well as recognize some people. Um, but my job is to perform acts of journalism with code instead of prose, um, which means that in isolation, my job actually doesn't exist alone. I don't. I don't generally have bylines. I don't generally hang out in story meetings, but a lot of projects don't actually come together without someone like me doing what they do. So generally speaking, our team exists to answer some core questions that a reporter might have. So about a year ago, uh, Dave Seglins at in the CBC Investigative Unit came to us and said, if we wanted to know everything we could about how the Blue Jays home opener sells, what could we actually find out about that? Of course, we called Ticketmaster and said, hey, do you want to share us your sales data on the Jay's Home Opener that's uh, nine weeks out? And they said no. And so it comes down to us to look at their website and say, well, what can we glean from public information that is hidden behind this glossy layer of, wouldn't you love to see the tickets, see how few tickets are left, wouldn't you love to buy your ticket right now, it's really, really great, everyone's buying their tickets right now, you should probably be on top of it buying your ticket right now. And we can write a program that then actually downloads all of the available tickets, all of their current price points, and then we can run that program you know, every two or three minutes for nine weeks. 
And from that, we can get an idea of how every single seat in that stadium sells, at what price points, how two people sitting beside each other can actually pay different amounts for different for more or less the same seat. And then we can take that data and then go over to StubHub and say, hi guys, would you like to give us your sales data for the Blue Jays home opener? No? Okay. So we can write a little program that goes and looks at StubHub and says, well, how what tickets do you have behind your little layer of clean buy your ticket now? And then we can compare that against the original ticket the Ticketmaster sold. And we say, okay, when did Ticketmaster sell somebody to the city? At what price point? And then how long was it just not in the marketplace before StubHub sold that seat? At how much? And how much markup? And how long did that turn out? Oh wait, we just saw that ticket pop up again over here on TicketsNow.com. Oh, but wait, now, now it's back on Ticketmaster. No. Nope. And that's the thing that we saw, was Ticketmaster, then StubHub, then back to Ticketmaster. And what this allows us to do is create a database that's currently about 1.2 million rows long of how that event sold. So we can look at any seat in the stadium and say, I know that you bought your seat from StubHub. You paid 35% above market value, above face value, rather. Market value is whatever you paid for, but above face value. And we could look at the person next to you and say, you bought on Ticketmaster, it was originally listed at this value. And then two hours after they went on sale, Ticketmaster actually dropped the face value on that ticket by $30. And that's what you paid for. And we can track it through. Now, one of the things this becomes interesting is we then get to ask questions around that data. We don't get to sit there and go, this is a story. We're going to explain to you how this actually disappeared. We're going to explain to you how this event sold, because everyone sort of knows that sold-out stadium is a sold-out stadium. You get what you get from the tickets. But if we can look at it and say, these sections went on sale at the moment they went on sale. Noon on whatever I think it was, like February 9th. Noon on February 9th, you had these sections on sale. And then all of these other sections weren't on sale yet. 30 minutes later, the back half of these sections came on sale. 40 minutes after that, these sections on the sides came on sale. When these other sections hit 80% full, then you introduce these other sections. And we can look at the way prices change, and we can look at the way people respond to those price changes. We can look at how people are nudged into buying different seats. And we can ask questions about how that marketplace works. Similarly, when a reporter came to us and says, we're trying to FOI all the safety inspection records for long-term care homes in Ontario. Aging population, a lot of people are going into long-term care, it's very expensive care, but we keep hearing these rumblings about people who get hurt in long-term care. Well, it's a regulated environment for safety inspections. We should be able to FOI those and see those actual inspection results. So we did that. We got back, I think the final number was about 11,000 PDFs. We asked for inspection reports, so they gave us the inspection reports in PDFs. Different page lengths, different governments were, brewing, were responsible for producing them, so they had slightly different formats. They had slightly different ways of organizing themselves. Signature lines were on different pages. But ultimately, you can look in there for patterns and find, no way, you use this one phrase. Whenever you find a violation, you use the phrase, a violation was found contravening section underscore section, and then you have a new line. And that's a pattern that exists every single time you run into a violation in long-term care home safety. 
in every single one of these reports on every single page. So we can write a program that then just goes through and looks for that pattern. And we create a spreadsheet, 11,000 rows long, one per report, that says, here's every long-term care home in the province, here's every time they broke a rule, every time someone got hurt, and every time a safety inspector found that they violated the Department's guidelines. That turned into a marketplace series called Crying Out for Care that just won a pile of awards for it being a decent piece of investigative reporting. Sometimes we get weird requests where someone says, hey, the 100th anniversary of the Halifax explosion is coming up. Can we do something weird for that? Like, what do you got? That's when we get to have fun. We found a way to use Environment Canada data to actually remap the Halifax Basin as a 3D space. And then we were able to use uh, the Army's 1917 map of the Halifax Basin after the explosion because they were responsible for a lot of the insurance costs. So they mapped it out to see what they were responsible for paying for. And we overlaid them on top of each other, rebuilt the Halifax Harbor as it existed in 1917, and then we blew it up again on the internet. Because we can do that. And it's an interesting way of doing storytelling. Sometimes we're doing research. Sometimes we're doing mining at the wise and helping reporters do their jobs so they understand the right questions to ask. And sometimes we're doing presentation work to just make sure people can really place themselves in the moment. All of it comes down to just figuring out what technology we want to use in the moment and writing code that performs active journalism. So we're a team of six developers who sit in the newsroom and we are responsible to the journalism. We don't build the overall website, we don't build the apps, we don't build the Apple TV streaming service. We are responsible to the journalists and we get called in when something's just a little bit too weird and we get to have fun with that side of things. And as a history major who was going to a lot of theater growing up, it's kind of cool to be able to be just like a weird art geek hanging out with coders in the newsroom. And now for our favorite segment, pull quotes. Lydia, what's your pull quote? This week, my pull quote is actually a tweet from Fatima Syed. And before I get into the tweet, I should give a little more context around it. I'm sure you heard about the mosque shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, that happened last week. 50 people died. And um, afterwards, Andrew Shear, a conservative MP, gave a statement saying how he condemns the act of the shooter. So Fatima responded to a statement on Twitter saying, I'm a reporter with the National Observer. You recently spoke at a rally with Faith Goldie, a known white supremacist who has bashed Muslims many times. Do you regret doing that in light of the Christchurch mosque attack? And how do you plan to tackle white supremacy and Islamophobia? And I just thought that was a completely baller move of her to do that. Her tweet went viral and she still did not comment. And I'm just really glad she called him out on his hypocrisy. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's kind of interesting to see um, journalists using Twitter as a way to get at people who aren't being responsive. And it's a whole other way of holding people to account. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, Another interesting thing about the coverage of the Christchurch shooting that I think is good to mention is the way that different news outlets wrote about it in the beginning. Um, I was talking with Sonia, our executive producer, about this yesterday. And uh, we'll put some links in the show notes but in the beginning some outlets were referring to it as a shooting as a mass shooting 
whereas others were referring to it as a terrorist attack or as terrorism. And uh, it's interesting to see who uses what language. And I think it, it makes a difference. But thank you, Lydia, mm-hmm. for your poll quote. Thank you. And so what's your poll quote this week, Michelle? So my poll quote is also a tweet, breaking news from this morning. Simon Haupt uh, tweeted out at 10.17 a.m. today. We're recording today's Wednesday, March 20th. Saint Breaking, St. Joseph Communications, publisher of Toronto Life, etc., buys Rogers Publishing Division, McLean's, Chatelaine, English, and French. Today's parent, Hello Canada, uh, Hello Canada digital publications, flair, and Canadian business, as well as the company's custom content business. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out, because I, I think we've all been kind of watching what is going on with Rogers Media. They had all those layoffs last summer, um, obviously took Flair online, and we know that they've been looking for a buyer, certainly for McLean's for a long time, and um, I I wonder how the Toronto Life brand, or I guess it's not Toronto Life, it's the St. Joseph brand, uh, how that might change some of them. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out and what it means for all those magazines and for those voices in Canadian journalism. Oh, definitely. I'm so excited to see what goes down. I think watching Rogers handle print was like just fascinating. Yes. <laughs> fascinating so is a good word yeah. for that. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Michelle. And that's our show. Whole Coast is produced by Michelle Stein and by me, Lydia Abraham. Thank you so much again to Alamin Abdel Mahmoud, San Graywal, Hannah Hogue, Annabelle Sutar, William Wolf Wiley, and Jesse Brown for speaking at our conference. It was really a treat to have all of you in the same room talking about uh, different ways of approaching the future of journalism. Thank you to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. Our conference editor is Adam Chen. If you learned something today, please help us spread the word by sharing our show on social media and leaving us a rating on iTunes. Have a friend who's into Canadian journalism? Tell them about poll quotes. They'll thank you. We promise. You can find me on Twitter at Liddy Abraham. And me at Michal Stein too. You can visit rrj.ca for new stories every week. We'll see you next week on Poll Quotes. <laughs>